0: Pretty much everyone loves the T-Rex. And after the first two films, it became an essential part of the franchise. So when JP3 unveils their new poster, even as a kid, I was a bit surprised. Gone was the T-Rex skeleton and replaced with a Spinosaurus. Not only that, but the entire look of the poster was different. Now featuring a silver metallic look with a shadow of a Pteranodon. So every fan, whether you were 10 years old or 25, you knew things were going to be different with the third film. The decision to have the Rex and Spino fight was an obvious one. The decision to kill the Rex was not so obvious, but definitely was bold. And yeah, looking back, I do appreciate the effort to try and be different and not have that fear of killing off the t Rex. They just did it. So our group led by Alan Grant runs away from the scene of the plane crash being pursued by the Spinosaurus. They stumble upon a dino. It's
1: okay, it's dead
0: but then realize this dead dino is being eaten by a T-Rex.
1: Nobody move a muscle.
0: So they turn and run. Being chased by the T-Rex, they suddenly come face to face with the Spino again. Grant trips and falls between two logs. He's trapped as a Spino and T-Rex battle. The two dinos bite each other as compies scurry about the jungle floor. And then, The spinal grabs a T-Rex by the neck. And crack. To me, the fight is still very impressive, even looking back 20 years later. I was lucky enough to speak with a handful of the crew about the fight, the visual effects, the impressive animatronics, and learn a little bit more about the fight between the two animatronics at the end of filming. Ricardo, when you were storyboarding, you were mostly creating images of ideas, things that might possibly be in the film. I've seen some of your Spinosaurus images on your blog. Can you tell us a bit about those?
2: Anything that involved the Spinosaurus initially, I was kind of involved with. And so uh, I was just kind of, again, because it was really early. Like we didn't have a shooting script. We didn't have a script at all that I remember. Um, And uh, working from that outline, um, um, it was all broad strokes and it was all about starting to figure out sort of the logistics of how stuff would happen combined with brainstorming different ideas.
0: Was director Joe Johnson giving specific directions as to like the look of the Spino or different scenes? How involved was he in that process?
2: When I worked on, uh, I started working on the, on the dinosaur, on the Spinosaur stuff, Joe came by and he said, Hey, Ricardo, uh, you might want to use this. And so he, he laid this, um, beautiful bust i would say it's about seven to ten inches long it was a faux bronze bust of the spinosaurus head right and it was uh, it was mounted on a um sort of base a wooden base with a, a a copper pole sort of stuck into it right and uh i fell in love with that thing and i started doing my spinosaurus stuff and uh all the extra papers i i I actually, good got the, the bust and I just moved it toward the middle back of my desk. And I don't know if I was actually gonna end up keeping that thing, but I was really <laughs> thinking about it, man. So I just started laying all these different drawings on top of it. These some of them were good, or some of them were the, the castaways. And I would say about two weeks later, uh, Joe came by and he's like, Ricardo, hey, do you still have that, uh, you know, that bust of the spinosaur? I could kind of use that right now. So I was like, ah, oh, inside, right? So then I just finally cleared all the papers away. I go, here you go, Joe.
0: Were there certain elements to the story that your images needed to serve a purpose for, like the Spinosaurus needed to accomplish, you know, one, two, three?
2: How does the Spinosaurus not just chase them down immediately and eat them, right? Because he right. was just like this the new badass of the story. And so um, I came up with a bunch of sort of... Um, uh vines and sort of uh dead tree sort of obstruction ideas that i i did sketches for and and that was a lot of fun and then uh the other thing that sort of we talked about was sort of the layout of the of the fight you know i i distinctly remember watching the movie for the first time with my family and then i remember joe saying i at a certain point i want I want Sam Neil to get caught in these logs on the ground and they're fighting and they're stepping on the logs, but they they're not crushing Sam because you know the logs are so big, right? And that made it into the picture. But yeah. And and that was just Joe riffing his, you know, his ideas. But you know, there's a few of them where you see the spinosaurus head come in and there's just a bunch of mangrove trees. And they're just—he's uh, snapping at them, but can't reach them. That—that's my stuff. I—I—that I, sort of resonated with me as I watched the film.
0: I'm guessing that's where the image of the mudslide came in.
2: Yes, like absolutely. Like you know, um, that came in because uh, I'm actually my my uh, my lineage is Costa Rican. I'm from Costa Rica, and um, my par- uh, my parents emigrated uh, here and never knowing their their kid would end up growing would end up growing up uh and working on a movie that's technically set in costa rica if you will right but it just rains like crazy down there dude and there are mudslides around there uh all the time so i tried to weave a lot of that stuff into the imagery that i was coming up with and so um that was a great that was a lot of fun that was a lot of fun just on my own i did just different gag ideas of the spinosaurus t-rex fights right and you know i remember joe uh coming back from lunch one day and joe had written a cryptic note like i like this one you know which was for me like i think i still have that post it was just some some dumb little post-it man that was on my draw drawing but i still have that thing dude i still have it so a cub scout badge if you will right <laughs> you know from one of the masters you know
3: My name is Mark Vaniello. I am a professional special effects makeup artist. I've been doing this for about 30 years. And I've done everything from building creatures on the floor of the shop to supervising and budgeting and, and working with the producers.
0: Mark, how was your role related to the creation of the Spinosaurus?
3: Well, my department was the foam rubber department. So what we were responsible for was generating skins of the dinosaurs out of all of the molds uh, that then the skins got seamed and patched and painted and then were put on the mechanisms or the costumes of the various dinosaurs. And it was, I mean, it was a massive undertaking. The the Spinosaur was one of the biggest molds I've ever had to run. They had to, you know, cut it down into sections because, you know, we couldn't fit it in the, in Stan's giant ovens. We had to do it in little pieces, in little pieces, big pieces.
0: I mean, that had to have been an extremely large amount of work.
3: It's huge. And what, yeah, a tremendous amount of work went into it. And they were sculpting it um, right outside my department room. So if you ever see any videos of it being sculpted or painted, it's like right next to the foam room and right next to the ovens. And, you know, it's always a little nerve wracking when you're doing that much rubber to get out of the molds. And it was and it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, we built one Spinosaur, we had to make a couple of fins. I think we did two heads but like there was one full size you know arms and you know back legs and stuff and you know it would take it took weeks for the sculpture to get finished and it took more weeks you know for the molds to get done like the mold makers spent I, I don't know how many weeks making these molds and I would use them in a day I'd literally get the mold and in one day we'd run the skin we'd open it great and then the mold And we were done. And it's funny because one of the mold guys like, you know, man, we killed ourselves for weeks in this mold. The least you can do is use it a little longer than a day. And I'm like, sorry. So um, it was, and and what was cool was comparing that technology with the original T-Rex stuff. At least the T-Rex from the Lost World. Uh, And then talking to the mechanics about it is that the motors were so much faster and more powerful than what was done, you know, seven years prior. So it was, it was... A really a much faster, slicker uh, puppet than even the original T-Rex, which was a, which is a marvel in engineering, in my opinion, and artistry.
0: Doug, as the art director, can you give us some insight into the scale of the Spinosaurus and how massive it really was? You know, the, the animatronics of it were like a locomotive. It was on
4: train tracks, essentially, through stage 12 uh, at Universal. And so the set elements really had to play around this very specific choreography of the uh, animatronics. And it was a massive uh, dinosaur, you know, just down to the feet. The rest of the the feet were then uh, replaced in, in VFX, but uh, everything from, you know, uh, knee up essentially was, was uh, working animatronics along with uh, the, the uh, T-Rex in the battle. So, that was, that was a challenge to um, assure that the stage, which has its own limitations, um, was used to its, uh, to its um, you know, greatest uh, potential, but then also we really were building around this very dynamic um, piece of machinery.
1: I'm John Rosengrant. i one of the owners of Legacy Effects. And on JP3... I was the um, animatronic supervisor for Stan Winston's studio at the time, and what came down for me, what it was, was looking after all the dinosaurs from every aspect from, uh, in getting them on set and having them perform.
0: I do recall watching a video where somebody was describing how large the Spinosaurus was and how it couldn't fit through the door. Is that accurate?
1: It, it was. It was huge. It was bigger than the T-Rex. And the T-Rex, we had to raise the door to get that out. And part of its travel, I know the, the famous story on the first Jurassic was we had it on the road at three in the morning because, and it was all tarped up and things. And Champion Crane had this big, huge crane and a and, uh, big, giant low boy that it w- went on top of. But we had a certain path that had to travel on, so on the streets, so it would fit under bridges that wouldn't catch power lines. So this is all going on in, you know, the middle of the night prepping. So the same thing happened with Spinosaur. They had a build, they meaning Michael Lantieri's crew, built, cut into the ground, a big like railroad track for it to uh, move on. And we also moved the the T-Rex over there. But the set was built up around the Spinosaur because it could be picked and spun around on that track to be going in a different direction. But the set was built around him. I mean, he, it was such a big deal.
5: My name is David Bonzingo and uh, on Jurassic Park 3, I worked as a key artist at Stan Winston studio uh, making dinosaurs. You know, hydraulic puppets, how they work is basically there's uh, there's hydraulic pistons that actuate the movement, and then hydraulic fluid
6: is pumped through to the pistons at high pressure. And uh, then there's a control system that, by modulating the pressure of the hydraulic fluid, it it makes
5: the pistons move in a certain direction. But hydraulic oil destroys foam rubber, and all the dinosaurs on every Jurassic Park movie Maybe there may very limited exceptions. Are made, their skins are made out of foam rubber. But the, the, the problem there is that if the hydraulic system springs a leak, that hydraulic oil literally des- destroys the foam. Not quite like acid, but basically once it se- once it hits the foam and soaks into it, it causes it to swell up and it becomes this like jelly like goo, and it's just literally like a and then when when that happens, and it happens, you have to. The only option is to like find find where the foam is still okay and cut out the affected part like a cancer, and and then try and patch in good foam.
0: <laughs> would so would that happen often?
5: That happened. That happened on the. It was either the T Rex or the Spinosaurus.
0: What can you tell us about working with Steven Spielberg? In the past, you've worked on a couple of Jurassic films with him. Maybe, you know, how was JP3 different? Because he was less involved.
5: I'll say, I'll say this, because this is not denigrating Steven Spielberg in any way. Steven Spielberg, like, there is this filmmaking machine that comes to set with him. His crew is this, and it's serious... You could, there's a there's a palpable pressure on Steven Spielberg's sets that is not there on other film sets, and uh, and so it, it felt a lot more free. It felt it just felt more easygoing. A um, good example. Let me give you an example uh, on Jurassic Park two. There was one day we were filming on the stages with the raptors, and we had set up for a shot where. There's a scene where like Jeff Goldblum's daughter does this kind of gymnastics routine and kicks a raptor out a window, and uh, we'd, we'd set up a, a kind of a, a floppy raptor puppet to get kicked and fly out the window. Uh, it was basically on a bunch of wires and it was going to get yanked out, and so mo- almost all the crew was across the stage filming, and Stan... Uh, took most of the crew over with him, but he, they just had me hang back with the floppy puppet. It's like just, just wait here. Make sure no one touches it. No one screws. Me. Just to make you know, we've done a lot of work to set it up. And didn't want anything to happen. So I was basically sitting on one side of the soundstage by myself. No one's there. The lights are off, and I'm just sitting there. And uh, you know, they're they're filming on their side of the stage and then all of a sudden Steven Spielberg kind of walks across the stage he's standing maybe 10 feet me, and he's looking into the set where they're going to film the raptor and he's looking at the raptor and he uh, just kind of just poses a question out to the, no one in particular, he just kind of says it out to the world, he goes can this raptor move its mouth, move its head or something like that, he asked if part of the raptor could and I look around, there's no one there except me. So I get up from my seat, I start walking the 10 feet to him. And as I get like halfway, literally out of nowhere, you hear this of feet come running. And this guy, it's one of his assistants, slides in between Steven Spielberg and I, like, can I help you? I was like, oh, well, I was just, he just asked a question. how going to end. Like well, you, whatever you have
0: to tell him, you can tell me. <laughs> what? I was like, oh, okay. Well, you can tell him that the Raptors had to move. All
7: right, thank you very much. And then I just <laughs> went back
5: and sat down, and he, it was, so that's like that's just an example.
0: Robert, when editing the Spino vs. T Rex fight, how did you approach it, and were there many shots cut? Was it initially much longer?
7: We did cut some shots. Uh-huh. I don't know if I told you this story. When the Spino and the T-Rex fight, the main shot of that, which was all CG, it was one of the last shots we got, and we were actually mixing at the ranch, at, at Lucasfilm Ranch, Skywalker. We got the shot from ILM, which at that time was down in San Rafael, and we went into my cutting room at the ranch, and, um, and we looked at the shot, and I cut it in. Joe and I looked at each other and said, you know, forget those five shots before, which was like the classic thing of two people about to fight, looking at each other, looking at each other, looking at each other. You know, it was close, medium shots, head shots, blah, blah, blah. It was probably five or six shots. Cut them out and, uh, you know, caused the sound department a little trouble. But And that that shot, that, that shot at the time was the single longest CG shot that
0: ILM had made. Shelley, as DP, I can only imagine the amount of prep they went into planning this fight. You know, you're shooting with animatronics and adding in CGI shots. Did your initial plan change as it went along?
8: We were going to shoot it like a standard fight, almost like a bar fight. (laughs) Um, Almost like a Western fight in a street where they come up and they kind of like, square up to each other and roar at each other and try to threaten each other away and that doesn't work and they're, they're forced to kind of to go at it. And we wanted Joe wanted to do as much as he could with these animatronics. The animatronics were really good. Um, and this was the first film where uh, Stan's dinosaurs and the ILM dinosaurs were able to share the same frame together. On the previous films, it had to be one or the other because you could tell the difference. You know, if they were in a two-shot, you could tell the difference. Well, in our film... We could do a two-shot, because Stan's dinosaurs had gotten so good, and ILM's dinosaurs had gotten so good. Um, But Joe really liked being able to use Stan's dinosaurs where he could. Stan's dinosaurs could do everything except walk, you know, and that's the one thing they couldn't do. But once they landed on a spot, they could move the way their necks moved. Everything was – it was incredible, Uh, the engineering on these things. They were absolutely incredible. In fact, even on some of the older films, the first film – they had to do some undercranking with the camera, which meant they had to shoot slightly fast motion in order to get the dinosaurs to kind of move quickly. Because in the Crichton book, to talk, he talks about how they moved almost like bird-like, very deceivingly fast, faster than you'd ever uh, than you'd ever think. Um, and so to get that, they actually had to, the the hydraulics wouldn't allow such a big creature to move so quickly. Well, in the in the later films the hydraulics got better and better and I didn't have to do any undercranking. you know I I could shoot normal and and they just moved fast if they were that good and um, uh, so we had done some shots back and forth of course the the animals couldn't touch and so everything we shot was sort of like on a long lens to kind of compress them and make them look like and they had to sort of sell their head butts and all that almost like a stuntman would have to sell that and that took some doing and it sort of it worked kind of only so well Okay, so now they're in editing, and Robert's cutting this together, and I I think they're not really feeling 100% like they've got this fight. And so let me just explain one thing before I go on to the story. The way that we would shoot plates...
0: Okay, let's pause real quick for a moment. If you don't know what the term plate means, and I won't claim to be an expert on this, so I Googled it to be clear. Google says a plate is also known as a blank take with no actor in the shot, also taken to give compositors a reference of what parts of the shot are different in each take. That's a plate.
8: The way that we would shoot plates, you know Joe Joe used to work at ILM. He knows all about what it is to shoot plates and so you know when you when you shoot a clean plate for something that a dinosaur is going to be in you'll shoot a background and then you'll shoot another background and you'll shoot all these different shots. So we're on stage and instead of doing all these various plate shots as different different shots. Joe would just do them all in one shot. So he'd go, okay, pan over left and get, now hold on that for a minute. Okay, now pan right. Okay, now tilt up slowly. Okay, now we've got two plates and now pan over right again. Okay, go to that tree. Okay, focus there. Okay, now tilt down. Okay, now now t- t- pan left over here. So he would he would do like five or six plates in kind of one 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 take just to get them done quickly. Okay, so now the reason I'm telling you that is because <laughs> Robert now has a long take with all of these plates in it, right? Well, that's what they ended up using for the background of that shot. It was the, the, the shot that they ended up doing with the CG, Spinosaurus, and T-Rex is all an ILM shot. But, of course, we didn't shoot a plate for it. But we did have this long take where we shot several plates. <laughs> and that's what they used. Um, they obviously did a lot of work on it, and they had to re-speed some of it and probably ex- do a lot of set extensions on a lot of it and all that. But that, that plate was our whole set because we he did like eight or nine I remember shooting it. He did like eight or nine different shots in this one plate, so we had all this movement and then they were able to choreograph all of the 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 fight within that movement. It was it was incredible the way they did it. And I remember that shot I think was the last shot we got. We were well into answer print, into grading, and that that shot was just a slug. We didn't get that shot until the very, very end. And it came in and it's Probably one of the best shots in the whole film. Um, this thing unfolded on screen. I My mouth was agape. I couldn't believe what they had done. Um, it, it, and it was by far the best way to do it. To just to basically play that shot out and, and uh, play a fight out of one shot was, you know, it's nothing that was planned. It's something that they found with assets that we just happened to shoot for a different reason. And then they made it work. It, it's quite masterfully done. Um, and uh, uh, quite a miraculous solution to a, you know kind of a problem they had about something we did that wasn't really working as good as it should have, that then became something amazing.
0: Mark, were you there to witness the actual fight?
8: I wish I
3: was because it was. I mean, you could have sold tickets and had bleachers there, seeing these puppets fired up. I mean, I was there when we installed the Spino. There's there's footage on the Stan Winston uh, School of Character Arts website that shows them you know, moving the thing out, which was, which was quite, I don't know. We did it at like two in the morning because we wanted to do it when there was, you know, the least amount of traffic. And we got it to the stage by six, six or 7 a.m. And then it was on a track. And, you know, I understand again why they used CGI because it is kind of limiting with these things. They don't, they don't really run around in, in different angles. You know, they're kind of on a track and they move beautifully, but intercutting the two was really, you know, what worked best. And, I wish I was there for the last take when they said, okay, just go for it, just like giant Rock'em Sock'em robots. I mean, these uh, dinosaurs were on a telemetry suit. So if a guy moved his arms, the puppet would move his arms. They had all different types of, you know, there were so many puppeteers and the Spinosaur puppet grabbed the T-Rex and literally ripped the head off with hydraulic fluid going everywhere. And it was, it was kind of a mess. That's what I had heard, I did not see it though
5: when they finished filming all their shots and Stephen uh, Joe Johnson had the two dinosaurs fight to the death, the Spinosaur ripped the T-Rex's head off. Literally the biggest robot fighting ever. And, and the most expensive.
0: I've heard from a few people about the actual fight where the animatronics really went head-to-head head and fought. Did you get to see it? Were you on set? And if so... What was the reaction of the crew watching?
1: The fight with the T-Rex was one of the last things we did. We actually had those two machines go at it. It, it, it was kind of sad, it, and it really affected some of the guys that had been on it, like uh, that had been on building those dinosaurs since the first uh, Jurassic. Because the, the T-Rex was basically built was refurbished on the one one of the Rexes that was used in Lost World because we did it differently from the first film to the second film. And then we carried on with that philosophy on the third film, which was to build half of it. Basically, you'd get from behind his hind leg and then cut at the knees and then forward because what we found from Jurassic Park It was hard to keep all of the dinosaur in frame.
0: I spoke to Brad Jost, the host of the Jurassic Park podcast, as well as Tom Fishenden. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Tom underscore Jurassic and Caleb Burnett, who is on Instagram and Twitter at Caleb Composed. I spoke to them about their thoughts on the fight and whether or not they were upset by the killing of such an iconic dino. Brad, what what did it mean to see the T-Rex die so early on in JP3?
9: You know, uh, yeah, yes, I'm a fan of, you know, the dinosaur, the the a T-Rex, but like, it didn't register to me at all. Like, the, I I watched the movie and I saw that fight scene, and it was, it still is a pretty fun fight scene. And there's a lot of like really cool stuff in that moment. And then you know, the Spino kills the T-Rex, and I, that did not phase me whatsoever. That was not a thing until later on in life when I started, you know, being much more active in the fan community and then podcasting and stuff. That I actually realized that people disliked that moment you know to the point of you know wanting changes or wanting wanting to see it in a future film kind of reversed with a different outcome um, and that has never been me I, I've always just I, I've actually appreciated the fact that the Spinosaurus killed the T-Rex because it sets up the Spinosaurus as something bigger and better and that, that was it paid off like that was the intent that's what they wanted to do they wanted you to believe that this thing was was way scarier you know they they hear that roar off in the jungle when they land the plane and they're standing there next to it and Grant's like no that's you know sounds bigger or whatever and and it is it's bigger it's scarier and i still i still love the spinosaurus so so much i feel like i'm one of very few people in the, in the fan community that like really embraces this thing and loves it to death and i'm i'm constantly making memes out of it because it's just so funny to me like i love this thing so much and i think I think this Spinosaurus could take any dinosaur out there, Indominus included. So I'll make that proclamation.
6: (laughs) I'm probably going to be saying a lot of controversial things on this episode because there's always like the things that people point out with this film that they don't like. And I'm like, yeah, I I like it. I like, I, I never had a problem with it really. I think... When you're setting something up like a dinosaur to be an adversary for the film, um, following on from two films that have been so T-Rex-focused, it makes sense for it to happen. And I think, um, obviously, in terms of paleontological accuracy, there's a lot of debate about that, especially with more recent discoveries about Spino. Um, But I think if you sort of think about it in its modern context, which I always like to do, which is taking into account things like the DPG website, for example, which speculate that it might have been hybridised, or I think it's the Masrani backdoor that says that, um, then it kind of makes a lot more sense. And I think it it just serves to up the stakes even more in this film. Because if you think about... um, the first Jurassic Park, for example, a lot of that film, the main characters spend it running away from the T Rex and they are absolutely terrified of this thing. It's the most deadly threat possible. So if you then in a sequel have something which kills that within the first few minutes, it instantly elevates the stakes. Um so I, I, I think it makes sense, and I never really had a problem with it. I like how it kind of it goes to show just how aggressive and how dangerous the Spino is. As far as the Spino versus T-Rex fight
9: goes, yeah, I think it it would have been a cool climax for the film. Um, and it's definitely just like so jarring where it is. And as far as film narratives go, I guess it like establishes the Spino as the as the big bad and you are you are definitely scared. The audience is definitely scared of the Spinosaurus after that because you're like, oh man like, just killed the T-Rex with very little effort and the T-Rex is kind of the staple here and it's like, well, this is, that. I mean, maybe that's when as an audience member we knew the film was going to be different. It was like, oh okay, like, T-Rex is not going to be very much involved here and this is a Jurassic Park movie, so
10: my name is Anthony Schaefer. I was the technical, assistant technical director. I started out as assistant technical director and I became the technical director, a technical director on Jurassic Park 3 at Industrial Light and Magic.
0: As you look back on your JP3 experience, how do you describe it?
10: You know, I was a low kid on the, on the totem pole. <laughs> you know, almost fresh out of college and um, tackling my, you know, first dinosaur. JP3 was probably one of my favorite Jurassic Parks. I I really enjoyed it. I loved working on the show. It was a dream to be able to you know light and work on those dinosaurs and um, and likewise having him there giving direct comments and being able to get that feedback really made it a, not only a pleasurable experience but it was a lot faster and more effective and cheaper to to go straight to the horse and get the words rather
0: than go through multiple interpreters. So your work was primarily on the Spinosaurus.
10: Uh, the context of Jurassic Park 3 is in uh, one of the first scenes with the Spinosaurus when you, when you meet the Spino or the, the characters meet the Spino is in the jungle <clears throat> and they, their airplane crashes, gets caught up in a tree and falls down. And then they're faced with this you know enormous uh, dinosaur and when they first um, bit out the shots, they gave all these seemingly easy shots to junior artists, much like myself. The first shot I ever had was the Spinosaurus crushing the fuselage. And it was two to three shots. They looked exactly the same. Uh, and there was a, a, a puppet next to it, a, like a half-sized dinosaur with just the leg built. And then um, I lit... And rendered the foot crushing the um, the real fuselage, and then the dinosaur would, it, or the the shot was inside of the fuselage looking out, and and it the foot stepped and it stomped, and then it continued to walk on. So the first pass of that of that shot was like, well, this looks great. I mean, the 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 foot is well lit. However, there's no ground interaction, and typically the way shots at industrial light and magic are set up they're either they either have a set of effects that you would apply say like debris or uh or uh, a tree limb um or they would they would have to develop them as they discovered these uh challenges in this case we needed a giant footprint um and then leaf debris well as it turns out that technique had not been developed for the show yet um and it being like <laughs> my first first week as a lighting artist, I I went to the challenge uh, with eyes wide open and <laughs> very naively thought that it would be an easy process. But what what ended up happening is I I found a technique they used on Jack Frost just a few year, a year before, where Jack Frost was rolling down. Uh, I think he was moving through the snow. And they were pushing the snow away so that it looked like, um, like he was plowing it. So I kind of took that technique, which is basically the foot, if you think of the foot as just barely touching water, and then you take the slice of the foot that's in the water, and then you use that to generate kind of like ripples. Uh, and then use those ripples to um, reproject the original plate so that it felt like there was a depression um, that was the technique that we ended up using. So, largely my role on JP3 turned into kind of uh, a groundsman of sorts. So I would design uh, plants that also worked well with the footprints, hanging vines, and so forth, that the dinosaurs would specifically step on. And uh, to interact with
0: being so young and working on a big budget film. What would you say your biggest challenge was at the time?
10: The other challenge that was really unique about Jurassic park three is that it was the first show to my knowledge that had ambient occlusion. Um, and for the non computer graphic people out there, uh, ambient occlusion is kind of the shading of a white dome of when you have a uniform lighting and you just see the creases and the 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 pro- close proximity shadows. So like if you were to hold your hands close together, the ambient light around your hands um, occlude everything inside of your cupped hand and, and it's shaded. And so after the the footprints, I was assigned to um, develop the system of which to put a dinosaur onto a plate and it would look like it's there by using this technique. Um, And I was really struggling because the light bouncing off of the ground of an object didn't have a shadow because the shadow didn't exist. And so all the, the feet were glowing and the under parts of the dinosaur were glowing and um after two weeks, I just couldn't couldn't get it working. So I called over my supervisor, Christoph Harry, and um who's a, a brilliant mathematician and is now building the next coolest thing at Facebook. Uh and he designed much of the lighting on Incredibles 2 and Pixar and so forth, and he was my mentor and I'm like Christoph. I just like this math is just insane. Like I need to have this vector coming from the sun, which then occludes the dinosaur before it hits this ground, and then it develop- creates the shadow, which then creates a vector up, which shadows the dinosaur. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. So and he popped open in a little window on my machine. It's like, you know, he types out a couple of equations, multiple parentheses, and he's like, oh, okay, I think that'll do it. And he like hits save and. And he hits render and then bink, (laughs) the entire thing was done in a matter of like less than two minutes that after two weeks of just like banging my head against the wall, I just could not figure out. Uh, And and that's when I talk about teams, it's the kind of person that would be accrued on a show when you need stuff like that. And
0: I know it's been 20 years, but even if it's not Jurassic Park related, do you have any fun or interesting stories to share about your time at ILM?
10: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when when ILM moved out of its ILM-Kerner facility in San Rafael down to the Presidio, I was on Pirates of the Caribbean 2. We were, like, the last show out. And it, it was at the point where everyone was just like, just get, get the hell out of Dodge, right? <laughs> they wanted to all go to the new facility, brand new everything. Um, the Kerner facility was acquired after Star Wars like after the original Star Wars so they had a long history of being in that building and I was on night shift and you know usually when we were fixing computers or whatever you discover all kinds of weird stuff like you discover like Richard Edmund's, like Oscar in the corner you know like literally like oh here's a Tech Oscar sitting up on a dusty shelf behind like an alias wavefront book that's weird and just like the rando stuff that you would come across because the facility was around for 25, 20 some odd years. And they would just kind of build walls and move people around and no, nothing ever left the facility. So when they moved it was kind of like junk pandemonium like they were just, tr- just trying to get rid of stuff because they were going into a class A building and it was highly curated and all the cruft and junk of ILM including all the stage stuff was literally abandoned. Um, so in the last day, we were the last group out and, um, f- there was a, a cleaning crew that, um, it wasn't a cleaning crew. It was like a consulting crew. And they had just like, literally were just throwing stuff in the dumpsters. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then they locked it up and uh, they pushed it out of the gate and locked the gates. And, and I, I saw some stuff go in there and I wasn't sure what it, what it was. So after work, I went back into the dumpster and, I got a uh, stop-motion... I think it's a stop-motion puppet from Jurassic Park 1. Maybe it's two. I don't know which. It's a Parasaurolophus, and it's fully articulated. Really? Yeah, and it's... it's Do it's, you still have it? Yeah, I still have it. It's, like, sitting right behind me. Uh, it's kind of like... In my Zoom calls, it's hanging upside down from my office, and people are always comment on, why is there a dinosaur hanging upside down from your ceiling? And then I also, I also found that like the tip of the finger of the Spinosaurus. So they... They the model shop, and this was a really golden time at ILM, where they would build out full maquettes of the uh, maquettes are basically high quality sculptures painted down to the smallest detail of the characters, their creatures, and then they would give those to the texturing artists that would literally photograph the puppets and then texture map the puppets onto the CG. Uh, mixed with real-world textures. Uh, and you can see it today uh, at the ILM facility in um, at Dac and the Presidio. There's a huge spinosaurus. It's probably I don't know, five feet long, three or four feet tall. And it was in the production office. And every day we'd walk by it. And sometimes, like when I was lighting the foot, like I used it as reference and, and put some lights up on it and see how the light bounces off and stuff. And I found the finger to it. And so I had this finger in my, like, trophy case next to, like, a dinosaur parasaurolisis and a, a Spinosaurus finger. And guests in my house were kind of like, what's that finger for? And I'm like, oh, that's Spinosaurus's finger. I still have his finger somewhere um, in, uh, in my trophy case.
0: Very cool. <laughs> yeah.
10: Uh, and it was all, like, you know, swept up into the dumpster. Just kind of, kind of funny.
0: If the death of the Rex wasn't enough, we soon have our hero crew stumbling upon the dead body of Ben Hildebrand and we find a video camera. But obviously the camera doesn't work because it's been sitting in the jungle for two months. But this camera has never met Udesky. Working as magic, Udesky puts a couple of flashlight batteries into the camera and boom, we get some footage of Eric and Ben tossing the frisbee on the beach. Sky high indeed. This is all fantastic and I don't really mind that Udesky fixes the camera so easily. That's fine. I also really like that Ben was killed off so quickly upon arriving on the island. The idea of a kid living on this island alone for eight weeks is terrifying. The filmmakers also don't hold back when it comes to the reveal that Ben is dead. His gooey body literally swings down from the tree and smacks his girlfriend, Mrs. Kirby. She is now face-to-face with a man she was possibly in love with, or at the very least liked enough to be on vacation with. I don't want to say for sure they were in love because it can't be easy to get over Paul Kirby. I mean, come on, he's a catch. And after that man, it would take at least a few years to love again. So Amanda runs off and stumbles upon a raptor's nest. We get this glorious shot of Samuel quickly rising into the frame and then saying, This is Alan Grant at his best. Again, he's the hero, and when we see the hero concerned, we are then concerned as the viewers. The quick rise into the shot, the look on his face, even if he didn't say a word, we know everything we need to be feeling by watching that. There's really not much else to say about the raptor nest, but assistant director, Artis Robinson, shared a bit about the struggles of filming in this particular location.
11: Some pretty challenging things as far as the egg steers, you know, at the raptor's nest, uh, where all the eggs are down by the river, when they find the eggs and stuff, you know, we did that in Hawaii. And on a practical location, and um, it was weather predicted for the day, but what we were filming wasn't raining. But up the mountainside, and four miles away, it was pouring down rain, and all of that water came down the creek bed, river bed, uh, and you know we had like, I mean, scrambling, everybody grabbing something, and we barely made it out before. The water came gushing through and wiped out our uh, raptor's nest set that we had to then rebuild and go back and try again, you know, on a day we felt more comfortable that the rain wasn't going to happen up above us. Um, So very challenging on that sense for that day, for sure.
0: And here's where we get one of my favorite shots of the entire film. And it's not something that really jumps out to a lot of people, I'm sure, but without a cut... The camera moves on a track with Paul and Amanda. We're gonna find him. you listening to me? We're gonna find him. kid's got resources. Remember what it was like to try to ground him? The camera basically just stops moving and lands on Alan Grant, he's standing right there, looking in the opposite direction. Instantly, we know something is wrong. It's told so well visually that Alan Grant does not really even need a line there. Where's Billy? The 21-second shot ends, and we cut to see Billy. Now, it's not some groundbreaking shot, but it's one that has always stood out to me. What are
2: you doing? Let's photograph in the next. Don't do that again. I'm sorry. I lose you. It's just me and the damn tourists.
0: And obviously, we know that Billy was lying. He actually stole the Raptor X. Now, the idea to have him do this is, in my mind, perfect. It allows us to watch a film and re-watch a film and not always be thinking, oh, these Raptors should have just killed them right then because there's an actual clear reason why they wouldn't immediately rip their heads off. But of course, the Raptors begin to stalk them, and they stalk them you know, all the way to the laboratory. Now, once inside the lab, we get one of my favorite sets of the entire franchise. This whole abandoned area is what I want even more of. I wish we had another minute or two just having them explore, but at least we get the absolutely classic Paul Kirby vending machine bit. He's got
12: some change, and he
1: takes quarters. I got like, I got a buck.
0: I got a buck ten. That is 100% my kind of comedy. Snacking on old chocolate, the crew follows Grant onto the floor of the lab. And we see an impressive array of incubators, tubes, all the equipment you'd need to make dinosaurs.
1: This is how you make dinosaurs?
0: No. This is how you play God. A beautiful set, and again, I wanted more of this. I spoke to John Bell and Jack Johnson about their artwork of the lab, as well as some of the images Jack had sent me about his ideas for the sequence.
12: I'm John Bell. I was concept artist on Jurassic Park 3, and I did some sketches for the ATV and, and motorcycles and some interior lab hatchery incubator design.
0: You've worked on multiple Jurassic Park films. What is it that has kept you involved? Are they reaching out to you? Are you reaching out to them?
12: It's been my friendship with Rick Carter for decades. And so when that was coming up, and then Stefan Deccant, he was, um, I don't think he was art director, but he was a, a senior concept artist on it. I don't recall his title, but you know, I hired him on to the first Jurassic Park and he and I have stayed friends over the decades as well. So knowing all these people, they just, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be in the back of their minds. And when a project comes up, I get called from time to time.
0: Looking at some of your images on the lab, what can you tell us about the drawings of the incubators?
12: I think Ed just wanted kind of an evolutionary update to the ones that were in the first Jurassic Park and second. So... It was just trying to make them a little more streamlined, a little more. They look strongly influenced by the old um, Apple computers of that time, early 2000s, those big clear-backed ones. I don't know if you've ever ever seen different colors and whatnot. So I'm guessing by the looks, I'm looking at the sketches now, they look very reminiscent of being influenced by Apple design at the time.
0: I know, for me, when I first saw these images, I noticed the scientist standing next to the incubator. Were there supposed to be actual scientists, like, still on the island in the film?
12: No, I, I always try to put, when I'm designing stuff, I always try to put a person involved. Because if you're not there and you're looking at that same picture without a person next to it, it could be 10 feet tall, it could be 2 feet tall. You, you never know. So just putting a human figure in there always sells the scale immediately
0: and a very serious question do you have a script
12: no have you contacted david lowry because he'd be the only person i other person i might know of that could have a a script for you
0: and i did previously ask dave lowry about this and no luck Ricardo, one of my favorite moments is the raptor behind the tube. What was the evolution or the process of that moment in the film? Because we get something very similar, but a little bit different.
2: Okay, yeah, that was another important shot that they needed to figure out. Um, the mom, she backs up against one of, the, one of the, uh, the genetic tubes, right? The cloning tubes. And you think that it's a, a, a dead, developed embryo of a raptor but it actually comes to life you see it in the picture right you yeah, see it yeah. in the movie yeah so that shot everyone took a shot at at that particular shot be, because it was such an important aspect to the story and there are sometimes in films where the director will decide look okay we need to figure out this shot everyone you know take your everyone take your best uh shot at it and figure it out and so that's kind of what happened um uh, with, with that, that was just kind of my take on it. Jack Johnson was another artist on the show. Jack and I were also doing sort of these board ideas and just single panels that would sort of describe the action, uh, but in a single moment, you know? And so there was just kind of a lot of what I call sort of sandwich development where, you know, everyone just kind of working on top of each other's work and yet coming off and riffing uh, different ideas.
13: My name's Jack Johnson. I was an illustrator on the film. And basically, the uh, conceptual versions of working from a, a line in a script to start thinking about what visually that might look like was the major part of my job.
0: You sent me some of your images of the raptor busting through the glass tube. And that's something that was kind of in the film, but a little bit less extreme.
13: It's just one of the irritations, I guess, or... or realities that we accept and the actually the, the the raptor trying to get through those jars was actually in the film but i think it was easier for everybody to have it be, come between the jars rather than smash through them and create the broken glass and rush of liquid and all that stuff which i would have preferred myself
0: now what about the image of the motorcycle on, it looks like a, a catwalk or some kind of ramp. I'm not really sure. Where was this meant to be taking place?
13: In the uh, where the lab is, there was supposed to be a building that was pretty much uh, all glass. Uh, and it had three different levels in it. And it's where they were supposedly growing plants and uh, various and sundry other things on, on different rows. and It was going to have two uh, ramps, one, I guess, on the left, one on the right, going down all four or three or four of these stories. So that was my my shape of of what a bike might be uh, riding on. But I also did about four or five versions. I don't know if I sent any to you of what that building looked like which then if you, if you saw the first initial drawings and scale, uh, you would get a better idea. There, there was gonna be a bike chase through there. And I don't remember how or when in the script that that went away, but that was a stare at one time.
0: Now, I realize we've already touched upon the script issues and challenges related to it, but there are a few more things I wanna add. Way back in July 2001, I was saving every magazine or newspaper article I could find that was related to JP3. I then taped these articles and images to my wall in my bedroom. I mean, actually, this entire wall was mostly 2001 film articles related to, like, The Mummy Returns, Tomb Raider, AI, Planet of the Apes. And these articles stayed up years after I'd moved out. So let me read briefly from an article that I had on my wall for years that I've read a hundred times and is very relevant as we talk about JP3 and the struggles that Joe Johnson went through. The article is titled, Director Dares to Step In for Spielberg. It's written by David Germain of the Associated Press. With Jurassic Park 3, director Joe Johnson had the task of following Spielberg on a franchise whose first two films grossed $1.5 billion worldwide. Perhaps the only equivalent would be if another filmmaker took over Star Wars from George Lucas. Johnson, who worked as visual effects art director on the first two Indiana Jones films, was undaunted about traveling in his former boss's wake. Quote, If I had ever stopped to think about it, I probably would have been. But what was my alternative? The only alternative I had was not to do it. Once Steven said, do you want to do it? The idea of me not doing it never crossed my mind. Because for one thing, I felt pretty flattered by the offer. End quote. The original script involving parallel stories about the island and dinosaur attacks on the mainland proved unwieldy. Johnston tossed it out and commissioned a simpler screenplay, often getting script pages just two or three days before shooting. Quote, It was bad for a while. There were times when I actually convinced myself the only way to survive was to get off the show. I called my agent three or four times during production and asked, if I had to leave the show, what would happen? End quote. Spielberg showed up on the set the first day Johnson shot the animatronic Spinosaurus, a scene where the creature is supposed to rip apart a plane. Quote, We're all standing there going, oh my god. Steven just walked to me and said, I'm really glad I can go home now, you have to stay. End quote. The result of Johnson's headaches is a tight film that runs barely over 90 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes shorter than the first two movies. I would love to see this one have a better opening weekend than The Lost World, Johnson said. If it doesn't quite make it, that's okay by me. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for people, and that's the main thing, end quote. Anthony, can you give us a sense of what maybe you were thinking or maybe some of the ILM co-workers were thinking in regards to Spielberg not being the one directing JP3? Was there any, like, maybe doubts in the film with, you know, someone else being in charge?
10: We'd heard that there was a Jurassic Park 3 and it was not going to be directed by Spielberg. Kind of the sentiment in the facility was like, "Oh, wow, okay, who's it going to be?" And those directors that have a significant stake in the IP, like Spielberg had with Jurassic Park, typically, you know, go to directors they feel have a vision for it or that they know their work. And Joe Johnson was an Limmer. like he was the storyboard artist on Star Wars. I've, I've seen his <laughs> his name on boards here and there, so it would make sense that. You know, Spielberg looking for someone who could direct a, a third episode of Jurassic Park would go to someone who knew ILM, knew the way we would work and approach um, the, the work and be able to fulfill the vision that he probably had for the film. Uh, outside of that, we didn't really have any, or at least I didn't have any specific knowledge. But it was cool seeing him up there. I uh, got to know him a little bit because he was uh, constantly walking around the halls and giving direction to artists which was always really fun
0: as editor on the film did you get more studio involvement maybe because spielberg wasn't directing i know there aren't many deleted scenes and i'm curious if there are maybe more that the studio decided against ever sharing
7: you know there were definitely a couple of small scenes i don't remember what they are now that are not in the movie um but our attitude was because they weren't in the movie they, they didn't they didn't they weren't didn't deserve to be in the movie, and and you know they, they they bogged down the story or they weren't that good or whatever the reason. Particularly with the Jurassic Park series, the only input we got was from Steven. So,
0: did did Steven uh, Spielberg have any major changes to like when you were editing? He, when,
7: when, here's the, I don't know if this is a public story or not. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just you know, just don't make a lot of it. Uh, okay. Uh, um, so, we were over budget on some of the visual effects shots. There were too many visual effects shots. The producer...
0: Kathleen Kennedy.
7: Kathleen Kennedy. Thank you. She came in and looked at the movie and said, well, you've got to cut shots. You know, Joe said, uh, "You know, well, I'm going to call Stephen and have him come and look at the movie. So, Stephen came in and added eight shots. <laughs> not, only one of them got
0: it. In the movie, so. It's amazing, but I guess not really you know, totally surprising. But how many people have ties to Spielberg from way back in the 70s or connections to George Lucas?
7: Did you know that Joe Johnson did all the second unit on Indiana Jones 1 and did most of the, the, the sequence of the, the, the ball chasing him? That's, that's, amazing. Mostly Joe's, that's mostly Joe's work.
0: And before JP3, you had never worked with Joe Johnston, correct?
7: I did. I shot, what, I got a call from George when I went to USC and said I need some help. Uh, we're trying to do these shots, and three people have tried, and it's unsuccessful. And can you see if you could do it? So I uh, looked at the footage that they had shot, looked at the rig, which was essentially a modified golf cart. Basically, just at the bottom edge of the Landspeeder, there's a mirror made of, made of plexiglass. I looked at it and I saw that it moved too fast, so I had them tip of the mirror not at 45 degrees, but probably 30 degrees. There were no visual effects. Right. You couldn't paint. You couldn't paint something out. You know. So there's, there's two shots that I shot in there of the Landspeeder. George replaced them, replaced the CGI shots, and I don't like one.
0: Oh wow! So he replaced what you had shot. Just
7: he when he did the restoration, he replaced maybe thirty shots. A bunch of them were the landscape.
0: Now, did you ever do you like stay in touch with George Lucas, like through the following yeah, Star Wars you know, movies?
7: He, he lives. He lives. You know, three miles away from. Him.
0: Oh wow! So I
6: have lunch with him.
7: You know, a couple times a year. You know, the funny thing was, the we found out on. Captain America which was the last film I worked with Joe on when I went out to shoot those man shots the representative from ILM was Joe Johnston really we yeah we, we did he was like 21 22 years old and we, we didn't figure it out till all this time you know you meet people you, you know you shoot with them for one day you know you're not going to remember who and what what you're not gonna I'm not remember their names but it was actually fun that
0: we we discovered that Shelly, you worked very closely with joe obviously and we know that there was a lot of pressure on him during pre-production and filming you know the script being tossed out and never having that completed script between all these script issues and the start of production being delayed how were you two able to stay focused
8: from what i could see um it was it was all about uh Joe really just wanting to to get to a story, and he was proficient in describing you know what we could do in a seek in a sequence a set piece sequence like the Tyrannosaurus sequence he knew we had to fly from the top of the canyon to the bottom of the canyon and 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 so he could he could talk all day about that kind of stuff, um, but what what he wanted was a narrative and I think that was his. That's where where I saw that he was feeling frustrated, and to the to the point where, you know, all of his conversations all day long were logistical and had to do with budgets or or special effects or creature effects or you know visual effects or and very little about story and and so I decided and I asked Kathy Kennedy about this. I said, "Look, I'm I'm sensing that Joe is really lacking." Um, getting his creative juices flowing and as I said what I'd like to do is, is set up a one-hour meeting with Joe every day where we talk about the script and I'll come in prepared with some ideas and we start talking about the script and breaking down sequences from a storytelling standpoint and talk about the visuals and talk about you know creative things not what rig are we going to use what how big is the set going to be you know actual you know storytelling points, and she said, oh, that'd be a great idea. So I started doing that. I came in for an hour a day. We had like a standing, whatever it was, 2 p.m. I'd just go in there and I we would just talk about the movie. Um, not, you know, and there was no no technical talk at all. It was really about what what can we do. And I remember we talked about ideas. I remember I pitched an idea once where we were trying to figure out an ending. And one of the ideas I I pitched was, gee, what if, you know, if you, if you think about the boy being on the island and, you know, how he would it, he wouldn't have slept he would have been in constant fear of, of uh, you know copies and all different <laughs> dinosaurs coming to get him um, you know would there be a moment when he's flying away and he's finally at that point I think they were going to be on an airplane when they flew away um, where we could you know focus in on him in the airplane seat where he finally gets to fall asleep soundly you know can that be can something like that be a small ending and he's like oh yeah yeah no, we could do something like that for sure and and uh Um, and so he really enjoyed, you know, talking about what the narrative possibilities were, even if it was an hour a day, that, that helped him. And I think that that, that's sort of what a DP should be doing. We should, you know, a lot of what we do is, you know, see what the director needs. And, and, uh, you know, in Joe's case, I was seeing that he was really lacking someone to talk creatively to, um, (laughs) in terms of, you know, what they could actually do with the movie. And I think that's part of what makes our collaboration work, you know.
0: Did those meetings continue during production or did you have to find a different approach because, because there was obviously less time for meetings once filming began?
8: What I told the crew was, let's, let's draw an imaginary 12-foot circle around this camera <laughs> and nothing inside that circle um, can be discussed unless it's the actual shot we're making. So no one comes to and shows me blueprints, no one bothers Joe if he's standing within 12 feet of that camera. We're, we're dealing with the shot at hand, and that's it. That's the only thing that we're... And I never told Joe about this, but what happened was you, he gravitated into the 12-foot circle. He just set his chair in there because people weren't bothering him there. He kind of noticed, hey, if I sit here, no one bothers me because <laughs> we would just chase them away. You know, it's like, <laughs> if we're going to... do So because we really wanted the area around the camera to be a creative one. And kind of a sanctuary for him. So pretty interesting how a film set works, you know, and how a DP can help a director, you
0: know. (laughs) As the script supervisor, were there any moments that stood out to you as, you know, very different from other films or maybe just challenges you and Joe faced?
14: So I specifically remember the fact that we didn't have uh, approved pages for certain dialogue scenes and we were on stage 12 and we were shooting a scene with Taylor Leone and Bill Macy and I we were setting up for it we were going to do a rehearsal with the cast and I looked around and I asked Shelley where's Joe I, I don't see them are they somewhere else and he pointed up into the tree and there was Joe our director Ta Leone and Bill Macy I believe bantering back and forth with lines and Joe was writing on like a little scrap piece of paper and he handed that to me and that was going to be the script lines for the day for that scene so that I had to find him up in a tree to figure out where we were going <laughs> to I don't know if anyone remembers that but I remember it specifically
0: Earlier in the episode, you heard from artist Jack Johnson. And much like artist Dave Lowry, he sent me images of an earlier draft. Specifically, he sent me two very similar images labeled Grant, beginning and ending, showing him standing on a ridge looking out. Uh,
13: I don't remember whether it was a jeep or all-terrain vehicle, whatever it was, but it was rolling across part of the desert-like area. And I was trying to uh, get that image. If he were looking down at that image or if he were in the image itself, but you would get this high angle of all this red, yellow, hot dust. And I was trying to compare that uh, to an ending shot, which might be he's again up on a bluff it was uh it was quite a reach and there's a, no surprise that it didn't wind up in the film but it was it was just a visual idea
0: do you recall the date on that draft
13: the The script that that uh, I have that's in uh, April opens with uh an un a ripples on the water and a girl breaks through uh and then there's another scuba diver. They're off to a, a yacht. Second diver comes up. Husband is skeet shooting. Um, then they see, when, when they come back up out of the water, they see a tattered sail splattered with blood. And then the next scene is a police headquarters in San Jose. And then the next cut is to a road or a highway in Utah.
0: You actually have the script.
13: Yes. What happened to me was uh, I, I tend to be someone who hardly ever throws anything away to start with. I kept most of the work that I was allowed to keep.
0: Is there any chance you would allow me to read it?
13: Well, it's interesting that the it's 49 pages. That's a lot of pages to copy and send and all that stuff. But the,
0: uh, I would absolutely love to read it if you ever get around to scanning it.
13: I don't know. I'd I'd have to think about
0: it. And I want to say thank you for listening. Really do appreciate it. I'll keep everyone updated on my quest for an early script of JP3. And of course, if you're a listener and have a script dated earlier than August 2000, I would love to read it. You can follow me at StuckOnSorna on Twitter and Instagram. And yes, I'm terrible at consistently posting, but I will share some of the images discussed in this episode. On the next episode?
8: Yeah, I don't think it was in the script. That Pteranodon was a costume. That was a Winston Pteranodon. It, there was actually, it's a guy. <laughs> there are like two or three guys, something like that, that walk, he could walk, and he had the big beak. You know, probably it would have been Sam's idea or the stuntman's idea. Probably just give, give him a kick. You know? <laughs> yeah. Big